your hands off me, you rotten, rusky son of a bitch! Indiana Jones. About time you showed up. Mom! Sweetheart. Mom. Welcome to the Three Men and a Retrospective Podcast, Indiana Jones Retrospective Series. Oh boy, we're pilgrims in an unholy land. Join Garrett. He speaks a dozen languages, knows every local custom. He'll blend in, disappear, you'll never see him again. With any luck, he's got the grail already. Matt. You don't believe me. You will, Dr. Jones. Come, a true believer. <laughs> and Adam. May we go home now, please? As they go through all the films in the Indiana Jones franchise. A solution presents itself. With the highly anticipated James Mangold-directed Indiana Jones and the Dial of Destiny coming out this summer. Tickets, please. One by one, the boys will look at the entire evolution of the Harrison Ford starring serial adventures. Whoa, 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 wait, 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 stop, 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 stop. What do the guys expect out of this new film? It's not the years, it's the mileage. What brought powerhouses Steven Spielberg and George Lucas together? Nothing shocks me. Is Kingdom of the Crystal Skull really as bad as its reputation? Somebody's gonna get hurt! Find out the answers to these questions and many more, all coming up, courtesy of Percolated Media. Okie dokie, Dr. Joe's horn here, potatoes! Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom. I've always wanted to say that because I used to have a book and record that said it like that, and I always wanted to say it. <laughs> Released May 23rd, 1984. Budget on this was $28 million. Well, I remember when that was a lot in movie money. Box office, $333.1 million. And this is directed by the beard himself, Mr. Steven Spielberg. Where to begin with this one? First, close off last week. Last week, something unprecedented happened, boys. At least with the three of us. It's happened on shows me and Matt were on. But with the three of us, we gave last week's movie 10 out of 10. Across the board. This one, we ended the podcast saying, we'll see what happens when I watch it. I don't know how I'm going to feel about it. And by the way, Quentin Tarantino calls this the best of the series. So... Are we going to agree with Mr. Tarantino? We will see. I am joined once again by my colleague in crime for over 10 years, Mr. Matthew Goudreau. Goudreau, how are you, sir? I think there's going to be two dead bodies at the end of this podcast if you don't hurry up. <laughs> and I am joined by Adam Bunch, my friend of 30 years. Hello, how are you, sir? I'm doing great. Unlike Quentin Tarantino, the slave's dirty feet, you know, don't push us into 10 ter- territory for me, so... Oh. We know where Quentin's coming Spoiler from. Spoiler alert. This was a huge event in my life. I was seven years old. I was waiting for this so badly. I remember seeing the commercials for it. I had the Marvel comic book, like a big, big old version of a graphic novel, pretty much, uh, version of this particular movie. I was so excited. I was outside the theater with my dad, and I was standing there right next to the poster 
as we were waiting to go into the theater, and I, man, my anticipation was huge. Massive, massive anticipation. Adam, as the one who kind of who grew up around the same time I did, how excited were you for this when it was released in theaters? I have no idea because I do not remember a theater viewing of this at all. I I must have, but due to trauma, I got a couple years that I don't remember except for one or two experiences. With me remembering Jedi so vividly, you think I would remember seeing this in theaters, and I just I just don't, and I racked my brains. I must have, and obviously I've seen it over and over with. Indiana Jones being a staple in the house uh, is a character. There's no way we would have missed it. But I have no recollection of my childhood viewing experience, unfortunately, for the first time. Goudreau, in the lead-up to, I guess, in Kidding Me the Crystal Skull, did you watch these in order, with this one being the second one you watched? I think so, but I need to put something on the table right away. This viewing almost felt like a first-time watch because there's one scene that I vividly remember... But everything else really felt like I had not seen this movie whatsoever, whether it was the details, whether it was some of the lines and the, the big set pieces. I really felt like this was a first, like like watching the new one, like I had never seen it before. And I think that speaks to the fact that I did not watch this one seldom at all as a kid or a teenager. This is easily the one I've seen the least, and I think I mentioned that on last week's show but at the same time, I was not particularly excited about watching this for this show, predominantly because of a big component that has been the big, I don't want to call it point of contention, but I think it's the thing that even the defenders of this movie, Tarantino being one of them, I know friends who consider this their favorite, but those are probably the same people who like Batman Returns the most of the Burton Schumacher films, I think even they agree, yeah, there's something that doesn't hold up as well almost 40 years later. This movie changed a lot. It changed the way movies were rated. This and another movie me and Matt covered years ago, Gremlins. It came out the same summer, and guess what? I saw this on a double feature with Gremlins. That set of movies directed and produced by this man right here Mr. Steven Spielberg is what caused that PG-13 rating. And when we get to those scenes, um, I'm def- we're definitely going to dive into that. Unlike you, Matt, this was the one I watched the most. I watched this a lot growing up. We taped it off TV when I was a kid. And any chance I get on the weekends, I would get up early and watch it. I would get up before school and watch it. It was just something I really, really enjoyed as a child. And I didn't even think about any of the other things that went on in it. You know, it it just wasn't, it didn't really register to me. All right, let's talk about the making. This was Spielberg's first sequel, or prequel as it is. He turned down Jaws 2, a film we'll get to eventually. Spielberg was at a different point in his career when this film was being made as opposed to Raiders. As we discussed last week with Raiders, he was coming off 1941, the biggest critical and commercial disappointment of his career, and he felt the pressure to make this, as we mentioned last week, make Raiders of the Lost Ark something that people and studios could look at and say, we can rely on him. His career was kind of taking a a little bit of a dive at that point. Here, he was coming off E.T., his biggest success. And I honestly think that had a lot to do with the backlash this film received at the time. Oh, yeah. I, I mean, without question. For sure. Absolutely. That's by far the, the most wholesome movie he had made at that point. And 
I would say up to this point, Temple of Doom was the was the polar opposite. Mm-hmm. For sure. Uh, so let's get to the writing. Lucas originally wanted to do a film about a haunted castle in Scotland. But Spielberg shot that idea down pretty quickly because he didn't want to do another poltergeist. Now, Matt, like I said, you and I, we covered Gremlins at the other place. Gremlins was written by a guy who Spielberg took a real liking to named Chris Columbus. He liked him so much, he asked him to write a script to this film. Believe it or not, the idea he came up with involved Jones going to Africa to duel a monkey prince. But that script was turned down due to, and boy, this is ironic considering the movie we're discussing today, too many African stereotypes. Although there is a sequence from that script that we'll talk oh, about in next week's film. I'm just laughing at the at the utter irony of what he turned down in the... Oof. This film was still banned in certain Yep, countries. it was. Now, last week, we praised the script, which we thought was very well woven with touches of humor and plot added by one Lawrence Kasdan. So the question is, why isn't his name on as writer again? Truth is... They did, in fact, ask him back, but he turned it down flat, saying the idea was very mean-spirited and not very pleasant at all. He said it represented a very chaotic time in both Spielberg and Lucas's lives, as Lucas himself was in the middle of a bitter divorce, and Spielberg had just broken up with his girlfriend at the time. And uh, they both weren't real pleasant to be around, if you talk to Kasdan. Now, Matt, do you think Kasdan's absence is felt here? Without showing my hand too much, in a word, yes. Yeah. I think it's obvious as a different writer. Mm -hmm. So Lucas went to a couple who he went to college with and helped him on American Graffiti, a couple by the name of Gloria Katz and William Huck. Huck and Katz, they ended up writing the script with uncredited draft polishes by Spielberg and Lucas's friend, John Milius. John Milius had a hand in the script as well. Not a lot of people know that. Not surprisingly, when Spielberg and Lucas asked permission to shoot in India, the government read the script and told them to get lost for reasons we'll talk about later. The reviews weren't very good, with one saying that taking a child to this film is the cinematic equivalent to child abuse. Though Ebert himself gave this four out of four stars, believe it or not. Adam, you remember the bad reviews for this thing? I do. I, th that's something, yeah, I, I do. And it seemed to be really polarizing. You know, it was the time of binary opinions where you loved it or you felt you were personally offended by it all right so that is the lead-in i have so much more to get into once we get into the movie but if you unless you guys have anything else to add we're going to dive right in matt do you have anything to add no time for background Jump all right, right. <laughs> so we open with a very doom and gloom score from john williams as the paramount logo shows up but then it dissolves into not a mountain like last week but the shape of a gong which is located in club obi-wan Get it, boys? <laughs> and that score dissolves into a piece called Anything Goes, which is being sung by what will eventually become Indy's love interest in this movie, Willie Scott, a.k.a. Kate Capshaw. Now, before we get to her, and I know we all have things to say about her, let's talk about this opening piece. Up until a couple years ago, when he did a remake of West Side Story, Spielberg never thought he would make a musical. This, he thought, was about as close as he was ever going to get. And it is quite a production. The original music appeared in a musical called Anything Goes, and it was written by a guy named Cole Porter in the 30s. Capshaw sings it in Mandarin, which is admittedly very admirable. And that is quite the feat. And I'll give it this. It's big and different than what we opened with last week. And as dark as this film gets, I feel this is the right foot to start the film on. What about you guys? 
This is Spielberg, again, showcasing his technical prowess as a filmmaker. And being a fan of film history, this is very much his tribute to things like Footlight Parade and other pre-code musicals that were released around the time this movie takes place, the mid-30s. But at the same time, in the grand scheme of this movie, it is such a sharp contrast in color, in tone, and just overall whimsy compared to the other 90% of this movie. I love it in this style, but I question whether or not this fits the context of the overall picture. Raiders of the Lost Ark absolutely ties in because it establishes everything you need to know about that character, setting up the danger. Here, this is a well-done tribute to movies of that time in the same way that Raiders was a tribute to serials. This still has that, but with the additional touch of musicals. So I admire it a lot, but I, I question its placement. Yeah, it's I, it's funny because Matt hit a lot of the points that I was going to hit. That, that it feels in place for this time, I think, is a great tribute on, on the Beard's part. Um, it's clear that he's got a love for those, and I said the pre-code musicals, those, those 30s musicals that, you know, that we see. I think in the realm of that, I think it's done really well. I think there's a reason that he didn't and shouldn't make musicals, including West Side Story. <laughs> Sorry, we're not going to get to that unless Matt and I do it, so I'll throw that out there now. Does Kate Capshaw actually do the singing yes. here? You said that blows me away, and you know what? I admire the heck out of her for that, because I didn't think that was her. But it's a fun, different type of opening, and I think if you had no idea the movie you're about to go into, this sets you off on a different foot than what you're going to expect. Um, Spielberg always wanting to do two things, make a musical and make an Indiana Jones movie, or uh, make a James Bond movie. He gets both in this opening sequence, not to step on what you're about to jump into, but I admire that he went... I'm doing my musical, I'm doing my James Bond, all the way down to the outfit, mm. and he does it here in the opening sequence. Yeah, getting there. So, all right, before we get there, though, Willie Scott, character who was named after Steven Spielberg's dog, who in itself was named after the Wilhelm scream, by the way. <laughs> oh, boy. That's true, yeah. This is another thing about the movie that is definitely different than last week. In fact, Spielberg and Lucas did toy with the idea of bringing Karen Allen back as Marion for this film. But the duo decided since Indy is their own James Bond, Indy should have a different woman for every adventure. Come back to that in a couple weeks. Lucas then pushed for a virginal princess as the female lead, but the actual sidekick is the character we're going to be talking about here in a little bit. There were over a thousand actresses who auditioned for this part, including famously Sharon Stone. And believe it or not, Marky Post from Night Court. She was one of the finalists as well. But Kate Capshaw's agent happened to be jogging partners with this film's casting director, so she got an audition. Capshaw got the role, and Spielberg had her hair dyed blonde, even though the costume designers wanted her to dye it red. Look, every negative connotation of this character has been discussed, so I don't want to get too into it. What I will say is all the negative things said about Willie Scott are completely warranted. She screams a grand total of 71 times in this movie, and I'm not going to go as far as to say she's toxic to the film, but as opposed to the strength displayed by last week's Marion Underwood, you'd think Lucas and Spielberg would have held back a bit and make this chick at least a little bearable. You know what? I think she got the role and was able to do whatever she did without being 
edited it around and directed because Steven Spielberg decided to direct this movie with his penis. And I think that that decision costs this movie a great deal of entertainment. And I resent him for it because Kate Capshaw, I'm sorry, she's more toxic to this movie than the black ooze that Indy drinks halfway through. She really, really is. And it's a shame because there's moments where I'm like, okay, that's the character I want to see. And then it's all just torn away the next time she shrieks or shrills or acts like that idiotic dumb blonde. It's just, yeah, nope. I I thought, you know what, maybe I'll find a way to defend Willie in this. And I came out hating her even more. Now, to take Kate, Kate Capshaw's defense to talk about the direction, she said the only real direction she got, and this goes to your point, Adam, while reading her character's lines was faster and funnier. Which... <laughs> Oh, that sounds familiar. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Come back to the Star Wars prequels here in a couple months when we get to that. You know, but but Karen Allen yelled Indy and shrieked Indy a mm-hmm. lot last week. And at no point did I feel angered hearing it every time that Indy was yelled on screen. This week, I, I do. I do. I, oh, man. I feel like I needed a new set of eardrums by the time this movie was over. I feel about Willie the way Star Wars fans rebelled against Jar Jar Binks. I think she is, I think she is toxic as being kind. She is, she is the Hiroshima bomb of movies because everything she touches is left in dust and antimatter as she waltzes throughout this entire movie. Not only is she loud, she is annoying, putting it mildly, Entirely self-centered. Uh, I don't think she does a real redeeming thing or something that is actually helpful for Indiana Jones. And the fact that she's a tag-along, like she is, if she was a Bond girl, she would be at the, in the Z tier mm. of, of Bond girls. And I, I'm kind of insulted that she watched The African Queen and a guy named Joe in preparation mm-hmm. because I don't see either of Irene Dunn or Catherine Hepburn in this character whatsoever, and I think she is as detrimental a character as you can have in a movie. So after the musical number, we get the year this takes place, which is 1935, as well as the grand entrance of Jones, Indy Jones, showing up in a tux- in a white tuxedo, very reminiscent of James Bond. Which movie would this be, boys? Goldfinger is the most. Okay. But I got to talk about oh. this. If you know your Bond history, the last one that came out officially before Temple of Doom was Octopussy. Mm-hmm which took place predominantly in India, point number one, and Roger Moore also wears that jacket in one of the big scenes. And part of the filming in this one is done in that same that same stage they use, the same palace, yeah. Yeah, so, you know, one thing, it is a certain amount of coincidence, but also the fact that Spielberg is such a notorious Bond fan. I do think to a minuscule degree, he is trying to capitalize on the success of Octopussy with this setting. I do think it was intentional. Oh, for sure. Let's talk about our title character. Nobody worked as hard on this movie as Harrison Ford. He got himself into even better shape than last week. Trained by the by body by Jake, by the way, Adam. Oh, <laughs> yes. God, that's funny. He is in just about every single scene, and he even herniated a disc in his back, first while riding elephants, and then in, in the scene that we'll get to, that requires surgery for him to continue. And I'm going to go ahead and say... 
we can say what we want about this movie, and I'm sure two people in this podcast already have their pistols out, but no matter what you say, you cannot knock the determination by Ford to be at his best for this character and this movie. I think he's great in this movie. I can't really dispute that. I think Harrison Ford does a great job. I think he plays, you know, the the comedy and the serious aspect quite a bit. I think that once we get into the, the caverns and stuff, we see a third or fourth side of them. So I think Harrison Ford was stretching uh, some of his chops in this in this film. All things to be said, I I think he definitely came, and I think he wanted to do something a little different. You know, he was already reticent about taking the role because of how close it was to Han Solo. So I think he relished the opportunity to do something a little different with with uh, Indy here, and I welcome that. Let's not, and then I don't even think I mentioned last week, unlike Star Wars, when he signed on for that, he did sign on for three films when he signed on to do Raiders. So he knew that there's going to be one more after this. And I do think, you know, he'll he'll play it different, sort of, all three times. Well, And I think it does show, there's a lot of talk to those who know this movie about it being a prequel. You know, it's really the first real prequel. I do get a sense that this is kind of a younger, still more womanizing Indiana Jones. You know, I do feel like he's a few years younger than the indie we get in Raiders, and I appreciate that, the nuances that, that bring that out. That instance is conveyed very well, that he feels even more rough around the edges than he does in Raiders, and in particular, he's sort of like how James Bond was interpreted in Dr. No, where he is borderline racist, clearly has sexist, tended, misogynistic tendencies that kind of get softened up in Raiders and all future films. So as far as making this a prequel, because outside of that date, 1935, you wouldn't really think of this as a prequel, and they don't put that in your face. It could feel like it's a separate adventure if you don't know the full details of when the last movie took place. As far as Harrison Ford goes, I think he is as good as he was in Raiders. The character is put in some different circumstances, so he's allowed to play in a couple of different avenues. So none of my forthcoming comments or criticisms are things that I can really blame Harrison Ford for at all. Now, Adam, last week you said you liked seeing Professor Indy teaching in the classroom. We don't see that in this movie. Were you missing it? You know what? We do get a hair a little bit. of it, mm-hmm. and it's funny. And it's funny, Laura and I were watching this, and I was like, ooh, ooh. <laughs> I looked like Leonardo DiCaprio. <laughs> the time. But I I did, just because, you know, kind of like a superhero dual identity, I think seeing teacher Indy and archaeologist grave robber Indy, I think it's important to see both sides of them. And I do think the moment that we at least get it shows that he's still a scholar at heart and that he's not. As much as, I mean, let's put it out. He's a grave robber. That's what he does. But he's got an intellect and a a thirst for knowledge that drives it all. Now, Indy is being warned by the waiter to be careful. So we already know that, surprise, Indy is walking into something rather dangerous. He's going to meet a guy by the name of Lao Shea. Now, I also know this guy from Bloodsport. <laughs> and I love this guy. He has the perfect laugh as a bad guy. Just awesome just gathering steam laugh it's it's great now the deal indy's making here is weird he is an archaeologist let's not forget that and the deal he's making with this club owner lao she is that of the remains of narachi the emperor of china who founded china's last imperial dynasty the manchu king dynasty i like 
this intro, you know, it's not like last week, Adam, where we saw him go in the middle of something. You know, we saw him go for that idol in the beginning of that film. Here we're seeing the beginnings of him going for something else, but we're seeing it all develop. Yeah, he's already got it. And at this point, he's just making an exchange, you know, pretty much. This is this would almost be like him going and getting something for Belloc, mm-hmm. you know, if you think about it. He got these ancient remains, and he's just trading it for a diamond. Mm-hmm. You know, he wants this. Well, I'll save that line for a little bit later. But it's this is not an altruistic uh, exchange that's going on here. Yeah, unlike in Raiders, he's doing this purely for profit, not necessarily for historical mm-hmm. preservation. So I think that's another key in establishing that this is a less refined Indiana Jones, while also making this feel very much like the pre-title sequences of a Bond film, where an action the big thing has already occurred and there's some kind of thing that's going to escalate. So I, I love everything in the nightclub, to be perfectly honest. Like the, the opening 20 minutes of this movie, I am completely in lockstep with if you remove Willie, <laughs> but, but, but that is a big, yeah. yeah. A little back and forth goes on here as Indy reveals that one of Lao's sons tried taking Narachi without paying for it, seeing his son bandaged up, just as Willie sits at the table. Now, in that Marvel comic book I had, Willie is described as Lau's girlfriend, and I never really got that until I really paid attention to this scene here. It doesn't feel like it. and I know she does the, you know, oh, you take the girl, mm-hmm. I get another. But I never feel like, I never, I felt like she was, you know, more her, his star white woman coming over to be the actress as opposed to a girlfriend. Mm-hmm. As I mentioned earlier, the negotiations taking place as Lau points a gun at Indy, and Indy responds by taking a knife to Willie's side. And I do love how Ford delivers the line, I suggest you give me what you owe me, or anything goes. <laughs> Great delivery here. First, Lau throws in some coins, and Indy dis- discards them, saying the deal is for the diamond, which is actually called the Eye of the Peacock. This, of course, makes Willie's eyes light up. To celebrate the deal, Indy drinks the cocktail that Lau supplies him, which was his first mistake. And a race ensues to get the anecdote to the poison he just drank. Matt, you're saying you're liking all this, huh? Yeah, I, I like these old school death traps. You know, this is very, I mean, this is right out of Casino Royale. Mm-hmm. So I like this a lot. And I, and I like that it, even though Indy has that guy that's working with him. Wuhan. The, Wuhan. Yeah, Wuhan. There's not enough of it days to where he didn't. I thought the big reversal was going to be he switched the drink or something because he was the yeah. waiter. But no, he actually ingested poison, and uh, his health gauge is starting to go down. <laughs> his health gauge. <laughs> also, Willie has that line about, wow, this guy must have been really small. I'm like, how many great cells does this woman have? <laughs> Wait till we see her get on an elephant. Uh, <laughs> Adam, you having fun with this? I, I dig everything at the table, the conversation back and forth. As you said, Lauche is just... He, he's a great Bond villain that they bring in for this one. Um, yeah, I mean, this is just such a good time. And Indy's suave and, you know, doesn't meet his match, but damn near meets his match in Laosha. This is somebody else that has a history yeah. with him, you know, so there's so much setup and pretext that you could tell a story of if you wanted to. And then once we kick into high gear, as Matt said, take away one little <laughs> or one big problem, but it's still fun and entertaining and the music kicks back in and it's – yeah, it's a great opening Bond sequence to an indie film. We learn that the waiter, as Matt said, Wuhan, another Star Wars reference, by the way, is a friend of Indy's, but he's taken out by a bullet in a very bizarre sequence of cham- champagne corks going off as the bullet races through the glass on his tray. <laughs> this was really weird. Uh, but it gets your attention with all the sound going on here. 
Even the way Ford stands up and acts like he's poisoned, he's just doing great things here. And I love how Lau's brother's like, too much to drink, Dr. Jones? <laughs> you guys are absolutely <laughs> right. I didn't put it together until you guys said it, but I should have just given the way he's dressed. But this is a Bond sequence, right? Absolutely, yeah, it, from head to toe. Yeah, and if you cut to the scene where Short Round's driving them away and you had a pre-title sequence of music, it would feel straight out of a Bond movie. Yeah. Especially because, for the record, Wuhan was in Beauty to a Kill. Oh, that's right, he was. Nice job, man. After Lau refuses to give up the anecdote, the first of 85 things that cause a PG-13 rating happens as <laughs> Indy grabs a flaming piece of meat on a shish kebab and throws it through the chest of Lau's brother. Gilbert <laughs> watched Happy Birthday to Me? Yes. Yes. A fight breaks out with gunshots going off, and this shot of a gong protecting them from gunfire was, by the way, originally conceived for the first film. And as this is going on, Willie is in pursuit of the diamond, and she races on the floor to find it, just as a whole tub of ice falls and conceals it. And this is when we see the one thing that gets Willie on this adventure. The only reason Indy takes her is because she gets her hands on the antidote he needs to live. They escape by hanging from a tarp, and as Willie asks Indy who he is, they fall, and they fall right into a car being driven by named after the riding duo's dog, Short Round, played by Oscar winner Ki-Hu Kwan. Oscar winner, boys. <laughs> yes, he is. Now, this character <laughs> was the idea of the writers. It had 6,000 auditions attached to it, and in a bit of irony, Kwan wasn't initially one of the auditions. He went to provide moral support for his brother, who was actually auditioning for the role. But the casting director heard him coaching his brother and really took a liking to him and asked him to come back. He showed up, got to hang with Ford, Spielberg, and Lucas, had a set of conversations that led to him flying to this set three weeks later. And who knows how upset this made his brother, but after playing Data in the Goonies <laughs> and then retiring in 2002, he would return just last year and win a fucking Oscar. This dude deserves a hell of a lot of praise, even if this role doesn't. Is this, is this where I dropped the yeah, mic? Yes. <laughs> I love short Do you really? I can't believe I'm saying that. If you, had, if you had asked me going into this movie if I would have had any positive things to say about short round, I would have told you to go fuck it. Dude, we have a, tons of podcasts where you say this guy is just as annoying as short round. He doesn't drag the movie down like short round does. You are saying you like this character. Yeah, well, I also preface my comments by saying this felt like a first-time yeah, watch. Yeah, that's true. It has been a very long time since I've seen it. I think it's because he shouts a lot like Willie does. In fact, that's 90% of his dialogue. But at the same time, he's far more proactive than she mm -hmm. ever is. Like, he drives the car with the the thing that Seth MacFarlane's Ted did with the wooden blocks on the on the pedals. He fights the Maharaja kid later on. He had bitch slapped, which I, which I did laugh at. Later on, I wish I could watch that scene out of loop because I think it's hysterical that Harrison Ford just open palms a child. Um, but I think this is the one thing when I look at this movie, you know, as quote unquote dark as it is, I think that sense of wonder that the first film has is is captured through him having a kid accompany Indiana Jones on this grand adventure. I, I think is is warranted, and I can't believe I'm saying this works. Surprisingly, well, now there are a couple instances where I think he, he does get on my nerves, but at the same time, he's actually written to be not, he's far more competent than she is, and he's like 10. I enjoy Short Round quite a bit. 
as Matt said, there's a few moments where I'm like, eh, don't need that, eh, don't need that. To kind of extend the length out of this. <laughs> this being the shortest indie movie, there's, well, yeah, there, there's some chuff at a cut that would have made it better. But as someone who cannot stand the Goonies, I enjoy Short Round in this quite a bit. I think he's fun. I think there's enough history there dropped in lines that you feel for him and Indiana together. Even just him wearing the New York Yankees hat that he is. So it's a Mets hat. Yeah, that's a Mets hat. It's a Mets hat. Oh, sorry, sorry. (laughs) You're talking to the (laughs) 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 But, yeah, Short Round is... And maybe it's because as a kid, you know, there's one thing I remember that I kind of had an avatar into this world. But I think Short Round, as Matt said, is also much more engaging and is much more of a character that does more in this movie than Willie could ever dream of. And, yeah, I'm along for 70 75% of what Short Round does. Yeah, you guys both hit on something I, I was going to make the point of, too, is that as an excited, precautious kid going to the movies with my dad in 1984, this kid was living a dream. Who didn't want to go on adventures with Indiana Jones? You know, they were playing to me as a child. Right. Yeah. So a car chase ensues, and Willie does the thing that hampers Indy this entire movie. She drops Indy's gun because she broke a nail. But but I will say I love Harrison Ford's reaction. <laughs> Where is <Yeah>. that gun? <laughs> I also love the rickshaw sequence here. That made me laugh so hard. Short rounds mm-hmm. running into this rickshaw. <laughs> <laughs> They get to the plane, and in one of the most bizarre cameos you will ever see, Dan Aykroyd welcomes them to the plane. <laughs> I love Wait, hearing what? every time I hear Dan Aykroyd do Yeah, that's voice. Dan Aykroyd. You didn't know that? No shit. I didn't yeah. know that. It's weird. Welcome, Dr. Jones. It's weird. You can't really hear it, but when you look at him, you like if you look close, you could definitely see it. And then once you see him, it's like, oh, okay, that's Dan Aykroyd. Yeah, now that you say it, I like because I'm pretty sure he's done that voice on, S- on mm-hmm. SNL. And- yeah. Oh, uh, yep, yep. Second City, whatever that show was in Canada. Uh, that's cute. I didn't know yeah, that. Yeah, he, he had worked with Spielberg on 1941 and was filming Ghostbusters right down the way and came by for a few hours to film this sequence. And I think this sequence, if this sequence proves anything, it's the same thing I said at the end of last week's podcast. This is nothing but a bunch of kids masturbating as adults, having fun doing what they've always dreamed of doing, which is making movies. You know, they just call their friend. They're like, come on, just do this for like five seconds. And he comes and does it and sends them on their way. <laughs> so Indy laughs as he tells Lyle it was, that it was a nice try, but he's gotten away. And as he closes the plane door, we see this is only the beginning because this is indeed Lyle's plane. <laughs> I love that for I do too. <laughs> I do too. The plane takes off, and we are once again given the trail of where they are going. I like that they brought this back. We also get a bit of character building, as Willie calls Indian lion tamer. And after Willie says ever since he saw her in the club, he hasn't been able to take his eyes off her, he responds by covering his eyes with his hat and going to sleep. <laughs> mm-hmm. I'll say, I remember this because as a kid, I thought it was so cool to like lower my yeah, hat me too. over my eyes to act like I was sleeping. <laughs> yeah. And I know it came from this. Like, tried to get away with it in school, couldn't get away with it. But I always thought it was just a cool little watch. Yes. Yeah. You know? <laughs> but as Indy's sleeping, we see the pilots of the plane turn off the fuel pump and then jump out with the only two parachutes. And this next exchange is great. After Willie gets told by Short Round to call Indy Dr. Jones, he notices that the pilots aren't there. And when Willie asks him if he knows how to fly, Indy just simply looks at her and goes, Nah, do you? <laughs> Always makes me laugh. As opposed as opposed to real life where Harrison yeah. Ford fly, yes. yes. Land, no. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> to 
me, this is exactly what makes it seem that Bond villain type thing. Because you got these two pilots, everybody's sleeping in the back. You could walk in the back and shoot them and jump out. No, we're going to go through this elaborate way of dumping, you know, the fuel to make it crash and jumping out. Mm-hmm. Like, there's some easier ways to kill them, but we're going to make it more difficult to ensure they get away. And yeah, it, you know, I would not be surprised to see Roger Moore walk through the background of one of these shots. Mm. Short Round says that there aren't any more parachutes, so they do what they can with what they have, which is an inflatable boat. They jump as the plane crashes, and look, while it looks great when they're riding as the plane crashes, these 1984 effects don't really serve this sequence very well. This is a leftover sequence from when they drew up Raiders. They had this idea back then. They decided to use it here. It's fun. It's definitely something that, you know, you would probably see in a Bond film as well, but I'm not sure that it looks the best. Yeah, this is very much a Roger Moore sequence, the fitting of that time period. So at least it was consistent with what Bond was doing around here. As implausible as it is, I do love the line afterwards was like, hey, that wasn't so bad, was it? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, this is where I got some issue. It's, I've already had some, but this is the beginning of what I think are several pretty poorly done cut and paste and rear projection and effects work. Cause I think there's a number of them throughout this. And I, I complimented, you know, even the map paintings mm-hmm. last week, but even in this film, when they use them, they're not seamless. Like the seams are thick and black and it's just obvious when some of this cut and paste just doesn't work. It's, it's kind of like, yeah, we got to do this, but we're busy doing other stuff. Everybody seems to, you know, the producers and Spielberg all seem like they're they're not giving it their all. They're giving it their 70%, their 80%, but it's obvious other stuff was going, and it's just like, ah, good enough, put it out. Because, yeah, it doesn't look good, but there's a number of things that don't look good. Yeah, you're right about the rear projections and a lot of the matte lines mm-hmm. you can see. Yeah. Um, and it, it seems like it's always in the scenes in this movie that involve vehicular chases. Whatever stuff's moving. A lot of the other stuff looks really good, but it's noticeable there. It, speaking of Star Wars, it reminds me a lot of Return of the Jedi, those theater bike chases. Yeah, for sure. You know, it's, it's, it's very similar. But as far as this opening 20 minutes, you know, I like the adventurous feel. Mm-hmm. I like that they went from Shanghai to now India. But India in this movie is like Tatooine, where I'm like, for God's sakes, can we go somewhere else? <laughs> because there is a point where this movie becomes George Lucas's idea of a haunted house. Yeah. They go over a cliff and land in some water. And when I was a kid, I'd go to Great America and ride Rip Roaring Rapids, imagining I was on this boat. (laughs) (laughs) The water's finally calm, and we see an islander who greets them. Indy goes with him to a village, which is desecrated with poverty. And he tells Indy that on their way home to Delhi, they will stop at Pancot Palace. Now, this is a bit of exposition, kind of reminiscent of last week's, as Lucas calls it the pointing scene where we are pointing the direction for our characters to go. I kind of like the foreboding, foreboding nature of it. I like how short round is sitting with Indy's hat on and moving his folded hands, mimicking Indy much like Brody's kid, Sean did in jaws, by the way, very intentional. I would say this is almost on par until Willie turns down the food they're offering boys. How do you feel about this bit of exposition? It's fine, but it's one of the things that I don't think works about the movie and that it's an outlier for the rest of this series. The other movies, not having seen the fifth one, all involve some kind of grand quest for an object that's shoehorned in with these Shankara stones they talk about. But 
Instead, it leans into a weird dichotomy with Spielberg, where he tackles something really dark with a cult abducting children for slave labor, but at the same time, when that's resolved, it's with all the whimsy of a Frank Capra movie, which kind of gets on my nerves, and I've talked about that with Spielberg at length. So this whole plot's a weird outlier, but I think it's also at the expense of Indiana Jones, where it's like, why is he so agreeing to do this? The stones are fine, but I don't think they're given the heft of the Ark of the Covenant. So that makes it a little bit harder for me to see the through line. Nah, I actually, I, I like what they do in the movie here, just because it, it feels different. It's a follow-the-map <laughs> kind of moment where, you know, we're, we're just setting up breadcrumbs to where we need to go, but I'm okay with it, because it feels a little different than what we got last time. If you're watching for the first, you don't really know, you know, exactly what's going on, but it's it seems like a different type of adventure for Indiana Jones, and he seems reluctant to even necessarily want to do it all, and I like that fact. I like that it's... You know, the reasoning for it is not your typical hero. And, and I'm down for that kind of, that kind of character play because it's not a lily white, you know, knight in shining armor. But in here, the, yeah, it's exposition heavy, but I'm okay with it because we could use a little bit after that really good opening sequence to get here. But it points us to the next direction, which then, you know, changes direction drastically. So it's the, it, it changes directions a lot. It, it's like moving down that river. You know, we got some weird choices, but yeah, I actually enjoy it, I think, more than most. Apparently this guy did not know a word of English, but Spielberg really liked his delivery. So Spielberg's like directly off camera, feeding him line by line, adding the hand gestures he uses until he finishes the scene. But this is why a little later, they just had Indy interpret what he's saying, making it flow from Indy's mouth to make it seem more powerful. Which actually works, mm-hmm. especially when you want this as a family movie. You know, I think Short Round is there to get the kids in. So, yeah, you need it, you know, regurgitated back in an easy palette for everybody to understand, especially the little ones. And that is what's going to hit them right in the face when this movie's released in theaters. But we'll get to that, <laughs> the fact that they brought up these kids in. So any goes to where the stone was taken, and it is explained to him that they wouldn't pray to their gods, so they took the sacred stone from their well which is what caused the entire village to dry up and turn the river to sand. But they also took their children, which adds to the stakes. We then see a scene that I remember being very expanded upon in that Marvel comic book I had, where a kid who has escaped the palace goes to Indy and gives him a piece of cloth, uttering the word Shankara. Indy then concludes that this would make the stone a Shankara stone, which, if given to a museum, would cause him, and I quote, fortune and glory. This scene was kind of harrowing, you know, seeing seeing a kid just beat up, whipped to pieces, pretty much, come limping to Indy. This was pretty harrowing to me as a kid. This got to me. Yeah, it, it's a different take. I mean, you can, it, yeah, just the, the child abuse, the slave labor, the using kids. Yeah, as much as I think as an adult, it's easy to kind of gloss over and stuff as part of a movie. As a kid, it's pretty terrifying. And, you know, this has been lampooned in so many different ways. I mean, shoot, the Clerks cartoon, you know, lampooned this entire sequence. Did they? Yes, and they did so They did so wonderfully. Um, but I do think it's useful in seeing Indiana Jones, because this has all been fortune and glory, fortune and glory, so I think it's important to see that he's got a heart for these kids. You know, he's a teacher. So just seeing this little turn and seeing his heart start to grow three sizes today, it's, it's effective. 
Yeah, and what I do like about this movie, and I say like, not that I support child labor, that there's no gray area. Like, it's not something that's just talked about and seen in the background. Like, you see the consequences of it right away here, and then you see deliberate whippings later on that are clearly visible. Like, it's not a it's not a thing they really dance around. So I appreciate that they go as, as far as they did. And again, this is not something Spielberg would do now. Oh, now God, no. Like, there's no, no. chance. Although you couldn't do that with modern standards and practices in any movie. Mm-hmm. I think the black phone is like the first time in a long time where I've seen like actually mm. disturbing physical confrontations with kids. But even yeah. that as a it, – it's there and it's terrifying, but it's not so overboard that it feels it's, unrealistic. It seemed, it's restrained. Here, Spielberg and Lucas are not restrained. Uh, you could tell both of them were in a very yeah. bad place at this time. Mm-hmm. We then cut to Willie struggling to ride an elephant even going so far as spray perfume on it. Most things about this scene I don't like, but I do like when she gets thrown off and all Indy can do as she rants is just bad at flies that land on his neck. Ford is doing what he can here. Yeah, what I what I find the music is that he looks visibly annoyed yes. every scene he is with her it in. Does. Both in terms of the character, and I think there is part of that Harrison Ford personality coming out where it's like, this is the best I have to work with. I just had to work with Mark Hamill for three goddamn movies. <laughs> we then learn that the birds flying overhead are actually vampire bats. And Indy decides after Willie's tantrum that they're going to go ahead and camp here tonight. Those are not vampire bats. Vampire is somebody who is somebody who loves bats in ornithology. Eh, yeah, take that back to Bond. Uh, <laughs> vampire bats are not that big, and that's bugged me since I was wow. a child. Oh. <laughs> yes, I know. <laughs> yeah, let's find a little random shit about that. <laughs> but they show they show these bats like every three minutes for the next Yeah, they do. <laughs> oh, my God. They got one good shot from Bridge on the River Kwai, and they keep reusing it. <laughs> So we're seeing a scene of Short Round beating India at poker, which was completely ad-libbed by Short Round and uh, Harrison Ford here. While Indy tells Willie how he and Short Round met, I'm shocked that we haven't seen this relationship develop in, in a Disney Plus series yet. Don't give them any ideas, please. <laughs> oh, just wait. I mean, well, they canceled, what is it? They canceled the, uh, what was the Nick Cage series? Um, National Treasure? Yeah, they canceled the National Treasure TV series, so you know damn well they're going to be doing an indie TV mm-hmm. series now. But, Adam, you, you mentioned this both this week and last week. It's really cool that we're seeing indie have these relationships that we haven't seen develop. You know, it's, it's like we're right in the middle of them, right? Yeah, it, it shows that there's a history. You know, we're not, we're not following him from the exact start. We're dropping into indie's adventures. We're not catching them at the beginning all the way to the end even the end of them you know they're open-ended there's something there that we don't necessarily get to see and i think there's a nice part of that yeah we've never seen indiana jones like interact with a kid whatsoever Mm -hmm. and i i like that it shows that he's deep down a good person because this kid was like a street kid since he was four i like that we're tying in uh again precursors to what what's to come later with you know the rise of fascism and you know what was happening in Germany with those families being displaced and again I think it's funny that they're both cheating at cars yeah <laughs> yes it's such a great scene but that scene is just completely put in the background as in the foreground we're having 
Willie find animals around their camp and she's screaming. And then Indy utters the line of the film where he says, the worst thing about her is the noise. No shit. <laughs> she put that on the yeah. poster. <laughs> this is also where Indy explains the piece of cloth that he got from the boy, which is about the magical rocks that Shiva gave the priest. And this is also, this also contains our one reference to Indy's fear of snakes as Willie grabs what she thinks is the elephant's trunk, but is actually a python and throws it to the ground. And I love how Ford plays this. You believe he's actually terrified of this thing, as Willie just simply explains, I hate that elephant. I like this moment from both of them until she speaks. Yeah. You know, but even right then, you know, she's done with the shrieking and screaming and the really bad effects of every little creature that's there. You know, but when she thinks, what is the trunk? And she's just like fed up and isn't doing the shrieking violet thing and throws it. Like, that's a great, not great. It's a good five seconds with Willie. And yet Harrison Ford throughout all of this is playing it really well. Take her out of it, and it's a pretty damn enjoyable scene because him and Shorty are, yeah, it, it's a nice transition. Yeah, and this is straight out of Phantom Menace when Jar Jar's on freaking Tatooine. <laughs> it's like that same, it's that same level of oh, just yeah. of, of oblivious walking into shit and yelling and just being obnoxious. Like I, I, I can't say enough bad things about this character. I honestly can't. And the you internet know, has done yeah. more than its fair share. Yeah, all the way down to Jar Jar, like, throwing that piece of food that then gets a bull buzz, like her throwing this snake. Wow. Yeah, you got it. She is Jar Jar Binks. The next day, well, she didn't step in any poo, though, like Jar Jar did. Well, <laughs> later on, I'm sure those bugs shit a lot, so she probably walked in some. The next day, they and see... Spielberg stepped in it, casting her in the film. <laughs> <laughs> the next day, they see Pancot from a distance, and we get another dark scene. I really like this scene of Indy going to the Statue of Kali. We're not familiar with it, but this sets up the foreboding nature of the palace, as well as that pounding score by Williams. I think this is, again, boys, it seems like we've been doing this all year, but I'm going to go ahead and say I think this is one of Williams' best scores. Uh, and there's one piece I'll point out coming up that's just outstanding. How do we feel about Williams this week? I think it's a pretty big step down from last really? week. I do. I think there's some areas that are that are well done. I don't think there's any that's amazing throughout. I, re- I mean, some of the darkness he brings, I like. But the rest of it, I'm like, of all the indie scores, this is probably the most forgettable to me. Oh, God. Talk to me next week. Matt? I like that it's, it's more foreboding when you get to the stuff in the actual temple. Uh, but up to this point... It's fine, but there's nothing really iconic. Like, there's a reason they don't really pull this score on compilations or whenever John Williams plays stuff, it's not from this movie. It's always the Raiders stuff. <laughs> well, I pulled from it for the credits. <laughs> but that's because you're Yeah, that's true. <laughs> you know, for the first time, much like Matt, there was a lot of, you know, watches that I felt like were the first time when I was, when I was seeing this and my wife was next to me, Laura, while we were, you know, for a lot of it, but this little thing here, this moment when he goes up to the, to the statue and, you know, he turns, turns back and he's like, stay back, stay down there. And just the look of concern on his face for somebody who has no problem putting, you know, short round and mortal danger with everything they're going through, just something about him not wanting, you know, the kid to come up and see the statue and what represented in that death. I thought was a was a strikingly good character moment from Indy that we don't I don't think we see again. There's just something about it. Good point. Our heroes come upon Pancot and are greeted by Chatter Lau. 
Now, this guy was in Gandhi, the film that won Best Picture of the Year that E.T. was nominated, by the way. And he's also in Street Fighter. <laughs> and What a career. And just a few years ago, he was in Tim Burton's Dumbo. So he's still working to this day. Wow. I like his welcoming presence here, and I also like that he establishes how he recognizes Indy's name. His work is internationally recognized, and I found that interesting. Yeah, it's definitely, it's very interesting. But... I knew right away this guy was in on Of course. Which is my biggest problem with this movie, that the, the villains suck in comparison to Raiders. Oh, yeah. Well, we'll get there when we get to the big one here. I like it quite a bit. And, you know, that he's, you know, Dr. John, you know, I, something about it, that his academia and his grave robbing both carry his name around the globe. I, I, there's something to that. And I like the appropriateness with which, you know, not only is there this prime minister, I don't know if, any of it has a prime minister at that time, but the British inclusion here and what they were doing in the area at the time, I like this introduction of people that we see and just the accuracy of what it would be of that world in the mid early thirties. Yeah. And, and when we get to the dinner scene, I mean, this guy has some great exchanges with Ford. The weird thing about this movie though, and Matt, you kind of hit on it, but let's talk about it now is that we have been told of who the villains of the film are. But we're only meeting a person here, a person there. We don't get the main baddie for about another 15 minutes or so. And what that movie last week did so well was establish the rivalry between Indy and Belloc and who he was chasing and who was chasing him, as the case would be. Here he's chasing stones and trying to rescue a village, but Lao Shea is gone. So what and who he's going to be fighting has not been established. And yes, it was Lucas's idea of making this a prequel so we didn't have to see Indy fight Nazis again. I get that. But that was part of that movie's charm. Where is this movie's charm? It's all in the opening. Once they get to India, the charm basically evaporates until the last few minutes of the movie. From here on out, it becomes... Haunted House is kind of the right word, right down to secret passageways and all that kind of stuff, you know the unwant, secretly unwanted house guests uh, where the the invitees have something to hide. This movie's not really pleasant from here on out, which is something that really, I think, hurts rewatchability is that unlike the first one, there's not a whole lot of playfulness from here on out or having a lot of fun with those tropes. From here on out, it's a different kind of movie. Yep, I think just after, I think we got about 10 more minutes of, of some fun before the fun gets sucked out of this thing. So we see Willie. She's all dressed up and ready to pounce on the Maharaja. We, we see Short Round being chased by dancers, and we move on to the dinner. Now we're getting more exposition about the thuggy cult. Now, they were at a loss as to how to do this bit of exposition, with the writers at one time suggesting doing it while on a tiger hunt. But Spielberg said he wasn't going to be in India long enough to film a tiger hunt, so they came up with this dinner. And according to Gloria Katz, Spielberg and Lucas were like two kids in a candy store coming up with ideas for this. From raspberry tasting monkey brains and eyeballs and baby snakes. By the way, Indy doesn't notice the snake. (laughs) (laughs) You know what I love here? Indy changes into Professor Gear for this dinner. He's in in a tweed jacket. He's got his, his reading glasses back on. And he's attending this dinner more as an intellectual than as the adventurer that he was. And I did, you know, it's a little, little thing just to change about it, but I think it's important. Yeah, well, I like that he's here as sort of like an American dignitary, mm-hmm. not necessarily, mm-hmm. not necessarily a robber. But boy, oh boy, yeah. this, this whole scene, yeah. 
is one of the things that has aged the worst. Yeah, let's get to that. So, <laughs> Adam, you're absolutely right. Indy is very flattering here, but this is very unflattering. And let's talk about the controversy that has nothing to do with what this film did to the rating system. And that is how unflatteringly racist this film is. Oh my God. So this dinner scene and a few others is a big reason why after initial screenings, India refused to screen it again. And I can see where everybody is coming from on this. I honestly do. At one end, you have Spielberg and Lucas depicting the type of serial adventure that they love growing up, which takes place in a world that's a darker version of Kipling that they came up with. But these people are depicted as savages, and their rather unflattering depictions resemble an antiquated version of uncivilized savages. And I can see why they'd be offended. Though as a kid, it just seemed like just a set of gags meant to gross me out. And guess what? It worked. As an adult, I can see where people were coming from. Yeah, it depicts their cuisine from a savagery point of view. It's also very inhumane, which is something that Hindu culture in particular is the antithesis of. When you look at their their culinary cuisine choices and things like that. So there's that. There's the fact that Willie is just continually grossed out. There's the interesting half of the table where they're actually having conversation. Uh, Just focus on that. It feels like she's in here just to shoehorn in comic relief because it's almost like they're aware of how either dry or joyless a lot of this movie is. So they're they're making her so obnoxious to kind of counter that. Yeah, it's a really good point. It's, it's, you know, it's like a tennis match, these two different sides of the table. And I'm engaged with the conversation between Indy, the British dignitaries, and the, the prime minister. Like, I'm actually very interested in what's going on there. There's some exposition that you're not paying attention to because of Willie's shrieking and antics. But even short round seems fucking over at that point. <laughs> But it's amazing also, and i got to put it out there, that the thuggy coal is the etymology of the word thug. <laughs> this was a real cult that existed. I always found that fascinating. But, yeah, it's kind of like we're going to have this here, but we're going to distract you with this over here. Is it offensive? It's amazing because I never found it offensive as a kid. It's a, and even now, is it rude and offensive? Yes, it is. However, I eat raw fish from a country that was seemed weird at that time, and I don't know, delicacies in other parts of the world. Are, I mean, I don't know, Anthony Bourdain would feel himself at home inside this palace with what he was eating. But I could definitely see where it goes too far. And even to this day, I can't walk by an enclosure without going, chill the monkey brains. <laughs> I'm a 44-year-old man. I can't get past it. We also meet the younger-than-young Maharaja as well as Captain Blumbart. (laughs) Why doesn't this guy do something? (laughs) He knows what's going on here. And while all the creature eating is going on, Chatter Lal is almost interrogating Indy about him being accused of being a grave robber and not an archaeologist. This is all, as, as Adam said, really good stuff here, even if this stuff going on the other end of the table is not. The Maharaja has had enough, though, and he says that he's offended, and he assures Indy that it'll never happen again in his kingdom. Right after this, he gives a nod to Chatter Lal and... Again, we're not supposed to be surprised when Chatter Lau is in on it later on. But what's really interesting about this is Indy sees this acknowledgement. He sees the, the, them nod at each other, and then he looks and he's like, okay, he, he knows that something else is going on, right, Adam? Oh, yeah, and I think that shows as soon as the, the room's here in a little bit and, and stuff. Like, Indy knows that the game is afoot, mm-hmm. so to speak. So later, Indy goes to Willie's room with the most delicious-looking apple I have ever fucking seen. <laughs> <laughs> 
so how do you guys feel about this silent movie approach to romance the way they're going back and forth here and the way they're just kind of waiting for each other in the other room i thought this was kind of cool the key word is silent <laughs> yeah <laughs> <laughs> that's the reason i like it yeah, I agree. I think it's enjoyable and fun, but I think Harrison is carrying both loads, like that elephant carried Willie all the way to Pancock Palace. She's enjoyable, and she'll say some lines good, and then the next line out of her mouth will be shrill and annoying. And it's it's unfortunate that they couldn't figure out how to have her speak throughout this movie that she wasn't coming across the way she was. You know, some of the lines, great. Some of the lines are, you don't know what you're going to miss, meh. And it's, ah, oh, fuck. Yeah. Every time she gets me good for five seconds, then it turns into shit. Yeah, and then she immediately becomes self-centered all about her while he is being attacked in the other room. I get that's supposed to be funny and ironic, but it also makes her even dumber because she can't hear. We then cut to the scene that did Ford in, the fight with the thuggy in his room. Lucas explains that while shooting this scene, he heard Ford just cry out in pain and suggested that he go home to get looked at. While this was going on, Spielberg came up with the idea of shooting the majority of the next fight scenes with Ford's doppelganger, Double, Vic Armstrong. And we'll talk about the big one this affected a little later. But let's get to the scene at hand, though. Where the fuck does this guard arrive from? <laughs> this is from Indy's, uh, This is from Willie's room, right? So that makes her even dumber because he came from Willie's room. Yeah, I don't, you know what? I never noticed that. I just figured this entire place was filled with not just a tunnel and secret passage we see. I figure every room has got a secret passage into it. But I like this fight. I like this action. I like the way that it goes about. And the ending, as much as anything else for the PG-13, but seeing this guy get hung and you don't get the shadow. You know, we do not get any of the beautiful uh, – there's very few. But we don't get nowhere near the beautiful shots that Spielberg and the DP got last time. You know, but shots like this guy being hung with by the ceiling fan and you know swirling around, you don't get just the feet. You don't get a shadow. You yeah. see the you body. See it happen. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, there is no holding back mm-hmm. on what's going on. But I think it's a great scene. I think the action here with them doing a knockdown drag out is pretty damn good. Yeah, it's it's well choreographed and shockingly graphic. Like you see the the body rotate at least a full cycle before they cut. So again. Sort of matching the, the the level of brutality in Raiders, just without the viscera. But they're come back to that in ten minutes. Yeah. So Indy kills him by getting him caught in a ceiling fan. This was new. He then goes through Willie's entire place to find where he could have arrived from, even putting his hands on a very endowed statue, causing Willie to say the one line she says that actually made me laugh. Hey, I'm right here, as she points to her chest. I gotta admit, I chuckled at that. <laughs> I, I'm still I'm still a young boy at heart when it comes to boobs, and it makes me laugh. <laughs> I can't help it. But the statue moves, and here we are on our way to the inner workings of the palace. But first, bugs and spikes. Oh, these bugs. A kind of moment that these filmmakers thrive on. Last week, the gross-out moment involved snakes. This week, it's bugs. I gotta say, these bugs really fucked with me when I was a kid. I could not stand this scene. And I do love how short rounds like it feels like I'm stepping on fortune cookies. Matt, how do you like this? A little racist. <laughs> I, I don't yeah, know. I found racist. it funny. I, yep. I could say. And by the way, Kiha Kwan has said he doesn't understand the jabs at this movie of being racist. Really, dude? Uh, that's because he's not Indian. <laughs> What's that? Indian. That's yeah, true. <laughs> how do you like this scene of the Reveal of the Bugs, Matt? I like that it's practical. Mm. And I know the actors didn't. Uh, K-Cabs yeah. in particular did not. But I also like that we got, you know, the old school death trap with the walls closing in with yes. the spikes. It's basically one-upping the garbage chute from Star Wars. Yeah. 
<laughs> Man, this this is the scene that gave me nightmares as a kid, where these bugs and them crawling all over them. Um, seeing the millipede go into Willie's hair here in a little bit, that one scene terrifies me to this day. Oh, it, it just gives me the it gives me the Willies. Nice. <laughs> if, really, if really Willie, <laughs> God damn it! You know what I miss though is we talked about it last last week. The the Indiana Jones ride, the Temple of the Forbidden Eye at Disneyland in California, had a room in a queue when you walked through, and if you pulled a rope, the spikes would come down in the room. I mean, they're 20 feet up, and they would come down mm-hmm. like 3 feet, but they actually had these motorized spikes that would move in the room, and that was the coolest thing, and they've now removed the the movement from them. But the spikes, the rooms, everything in here... It feels like an escalation to the opening of Raiders last week. So I'm digging this venture down into the temple. I don't know. I was too much in pain at that point. Go back to last week's show. Yeah, find true. Out why. <laughs> <laughs> All that ensues, it should be said, is due to short round. First, he pulls a lever, which causes a couple corpses left over from last week's movie to spring from the wall. Then he steps on a sort of button that causes all the doors to close. He then does what Indy tells him to do, which is lean against the wall, which causes the spikes to come down. And I do love Short Round's argument because it's a good one. Indy was the one who told him to stand against the wall. He was just doing what he yeah. said. Yeah, where he's like, not my fault, yeah. not my fault. <laughs> now, Spielberg himself came up with the spike room. And... It's actually one of my favorite parts of this movie. We are seeing spikes come down in a very harrowing set of shots. I especially love the shot of the corpse on the ground rising up, almost like it's rising from the dead. But no, it's just due to a spike making it move off the ground. That was a great shot that used to give me nightmares as a kid. With the cultish elements of this movie, necromancy would not have been that far. (laughs) You're not wrong. Absolutely. And as you guys have said, Willie is just engulfed in bugs, trying to find the switch, having to reach through slime to pull it. This is pretty fun stuff, I gotta say. Well, and, and the cuts to you know Harrison Ford, yeah. you know the little things. Not not this. Yeah, right, <laughs> your other right. I mean, he's just fed up with Willie as we are. There's gonna be two <laughs> dead bodies down here if you don't hurry. <laughs> just like his lines are. I mean, they're. They're ones against we are going to yeah. die. Yeah, and, it, and then it lingers on his face as he <laughs> says it. <laughs> it just, you know, it's great shots. The spike is starting to come through his fedora. Yeah. You know, little things like that. Like, this is when some of the shooting is the absolute best. And it just won't end because as Willie runs in, she drops the lamp, and then when she bends over to pick it up, she hits the lever again. And this is great because Ford <sighs> is giving the oh shit, not again type look without even saying anything. And the Williams piece that had been playing before picks right up where it left off and short round is outside yeah, the door it, pointing fingers at willie saying it wasn't me it was her you know what that's a great point is the score ends and we're transitioning and as soon as she does it it's like you hit a skip button yeah you know it just goes right back into it like oh guess what <laughs> and yeah that that short round moment of not me it her it her it's just it's great but we finally hear the Raiders theme as they roll outside the door in a funny bit of indie trivia. That's actually Spielberg's hand that grabs the hat before the door closes. They emerge and they move on to the scene that everyone still talks about. It is a fitting metaphor for what they were going through at the time. And it's funny because Spielberg denounces this film now. But Lucas remembers this shoot as if one would go dark, the other would go darker. Like, Lucas would come up with the idea of pulling the man's heart out because, by the way, he was going through a divorce, so he felt like his heart was being pulled out. And Spielberg upped it further by having the guy die amongst fire and lava. 
He was the one who came up with that. So is Spielberg trying to redefine history by saying, no, George was the one who came up with all this stuff. No, 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 no. Steven Spielberg was just as much to blame here. Oh, well, being that when the pit opens up, we see the swirling vortex of poltergeist. Yeah. Like, I got no idea where some of this came from. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And a guy from ILM has a great story of Spielberg showing up at the effects shop saying that he wanted a replica of a chest that can burst open and then heal itself back up. And the effects guy just kind of looked at him like, uh, excuse me, if uh, Rick Baker's shop is that way. Yeah, but I do think this looks good. We have our villain, who we'll talk about here in a moment, approach this poor helpless guy, and as he reaches up, he goes to the guy's chest and literally pulls out his heart, just like the women in both Spielberg and Lucas's lives had done to them. And it's funny because the guy who played this victim, he had to go to theaters to see what happened to him. And what what it is is so harrowing. Like, he had no idea that he burned up after. The heart is pulled out and is completely bloodless. That was Spielberg's idea, by the way, to have it be completely bloodless. And is still alive and has to suffer a death by being lowered into lava by guys in scary makeup while screaming to God knows where. This is fucking horrifying, and I can see why parents threw a fit at this. Yeah, you ha- your justification is complaining with the PG mantra here. Uh, and for the record, this is far bloodier than the Mortal Kombat movie we would get a decade later, where they this is the one of the most infamous moments from that game, and this is a PG movie. It is gross, and I'm not going to say it's a problem, but one of the things I like about how the the supernatural is handled in Raiders is that there's a lot of mysticism involved and in the way that they all die at the end that's very much in line with the old testament version of god where he's just like this vengeful borderline bloodthirsty monster here it just perpetuates the worst stereotypes about misunderstood cults and i I do think it borders on sadomasochism just a little bit so i get the brutality but it's i don't think it meshes well with the previous movie like this feels like it's out of another universe than what we got in the last movie but that's what goes along with it being a prequel right that seems to be lucas's out like because it's a prequel he went through it before he went to raiders like he was a different person it does but then it makes you wonder okay if he saw someone's heart get pulled out of his chest and they were still alive why is he so against the idea of the ark having supernatural mm-hmm. powers yeah you know that's the biggest that's problem with prequels in for sure boy this thing is Mess. It feels like a different movie. It's terrifying. It's effective. It's it's effective. Crazy thing about that heart, it's bloodless until he's about to die. It beats so fast and rapid that the last like two cuts of the heart, it starts bleeding out of the middle of it down Malaram's arm. But this sco- where you know the score is is increasing, the chant is increasing, the heart is beating faster. This, I mean, damn. I'm I, I guess you know Short Round also stopped on the lament configuration box because this is Hellraiser esque in its torture and brutality. And whoo, Nelly, this is still. I can't believe they got away with this in this film. It's it's tough because it. What do you do after this? You know, you you've kind of peaked with your horror that that you've done right here. But wow, it is something else. I'll give it that. It's it's a massive shift in tone. Even with all the elements we saw before, this thing takes a right turn that you can't... I, I don't want to say you can't justify it, but you got a hard time saying that this is the same movie that we got for the opening 30, 40 minutes. Mick Garris, on his podcast, has said that you know he was working with Spielberg around this time, both Lucas and Spielberg. 
because he did the press releases for both and he worked on the behind the scenes stuff that they did around this time and he said in the conversations he had with Spielberg around this time he said that this scene is like just a taste of what he has in his head but he didn't feel like he could do that stuff because of what he was kind of felt pigeonholed into which by the way made him a millionaire so I mean you know nobody's crying any tears mm-hmm. that Spielberg didn't get to do what he kind of was hoping he would do as a filmmaker around this time but again I just think this is two guys who are getting their anger out getting their hurt out in a very very cinematic yet very violent way and you know what if it works for therapy more power to them but it was at the expense of tons of parents who just were let left fucking horrified that this went on now it should be said you know my dad did take me to this but i told everybody when we did when we went to return of the jedi we went later on that night with my mom guess what we didn't take mom to this later on this night <laughs> dad knew that my mom would throw a fit but we enjoyed it at least as a kid i, I dug this man i thought this was awesome i was so upset because i never they never did make like a toys of this i wanted this fucking temple as a toy but guess what they didn't do that <laughs> It's amazing that I think I'm bothered by this more as an adult than I ever was as a child. I think as a child, I thought this was cool and awesome. And maybe it's because it was something that I wasn't, you know, necessarily supposed to be seeing, at least, mm-hmm. you know, without using the black box when my parents went to bed at 10 o'clock at night. Now, everybody throwing a fit and pitching. Remember, Jaws was PG. Yeah. <laughs> Guys was PG, and I the mean, guy's so, face fell off in that moment. Yeah, exactly. Now... I, I do want to remind parents that, you know, when your kids are in middle school and they say that kids can bring any PG movie to school, don't do that. You might get a phone call from your son, Alex's principal, I'm just saying. Um, but, but it's amazing because, you know, I'll be outraged at this cause. But I do think it's the it's the close-up and it's just how in-your-face it is of everything that's going on. Spielberg did say at the time that the movie isn't called Indiana Jones and the Temple of Roses. He called it a dark he called it a dark fantasy film filled with things that other kids have no possibility of doing to one another. And I mean, I don't remember any reports of kids pulling out their friends' hearts after this. Do you guys? <laughs> I remember practicing this in the uh, in the playground. <laughs> I remember doing the you know Kalima and acting like you were going to yeah. do it. All right, let's talk about that character you just mocked. Yes, we should call him the main villain of this piece, Mola Ram. Now, this guy who plays him, big hulking man who just looks, he he just looks ultra mean. I guess this actor was so in demand that he would go off to India and shoot on weekends to do other projects while he was shooting this film. I like this villain. He's very imposing with this crazy looking helmet he's wearing. I think that's awesome. But Matt, it's the Rob Zombie Michael Myers problem, right? Last week, we had an intelligent villain who was always just one step ahead of Indy. Here, we have a guy who was made up to look evil and looks like he can whip our hero's ass, but does that make him any better? I don't think so. No, I don't I don't think it does. One of the problems is also he comes so late into mm-hmm. the picture that he doesn't get the chance to feel like a substantial threat. Even with, you know, we got fucking mind control black ooze and he's got a child army at his disposal... But he still gets taken out, you know, in a way where it's like he doesn't go out in the... Well, we'll save that for later. But yeah, I think the the villains are one of the, the big missteps of this movie. It's not that they're unmemorable. I think they're underdeveloped and also racist. Yeah. Like like th- this... Uh, it's, it's strange that a James Bond movie called Octopussy is more culturally sensitive <laughs> than, than a Steven Spielberg movie. 
And Cheddar Lau, the guy who plays Cheddar Lau, he said in, uh, I think it was Entertainment Weekly story I read, he said that he loved this actor. He was a really, really, really nice guy, but he doesn't know how he kept playing this role without knowing exactly what he was portraying <laughs> because it is this is very, very culturally insensitive too. Yeah, I think Matt hit it. It's, it's underdeveloped because throughout this entire thing, other than getting the other few rocks, there's nothing else to it. Well, okay. It's just th- there needs to be more to this guy, especially after what we got last week. That was so just so cerebral and so developed that this is it, no, yeah, this is this is a throwaway villain, unfortunately, and it's a shame because he's definitely memorable. You know enough that his whole career, he's just like I shaved my head once, I had to keep doing it, and everybody kept hiring me because of my look. You know, everybody knows what he looks like and face of fear, but it's. There's not more to him other than ripping out a heart. To give my piece on him, Spielberg did say in press releases that the reason he had never done a sequel before this is because you always run into a catch-22 where if you do what worked before, you have people say, why didn't you do anything different? But if you do something different, you're always asked, why didn't you do what worked before? Here they went with different, and I like this as a child. As an adult, I kind of wish there was more to him. Yeah, it's. I mean, there's a catch-22 that Mm -hmm. way. Do you do more of the same? Do you just escalate and, you know, piss off people? It's it's why George Lucas quit filming. Yeah, pretty much. The other thing is this wasn't a corner market slasher being made by Sean Cunningham. These were big-name, successful filmmakers known for movies that cater to kids, making something designed to horrify. It was really tough for people to handle. Oh, God, yeah. like People almost fainted in the theater when they saw it happen. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Mm-hmm. Not that I was actually there. <laughs> you know, even as a child, even as a seven-year-old, I remember the uproar. I remember the newspaper articles. I remember all of that. I would see them on my parents' kitchen table. And it, let's not forget, Spielberg was the one who went to the board and had that rating changed. It was his idea. So, yeah. I mean, But as a kid, you know, I wanted to get out of Pincott Palace and get to this. Mm-hmm. As an adult, I'm enjoying the explanation of Pancot Palace and everything that's going, the discussions being had. As a kid, get me to the temple. So after this bout of cinematic history, Indy sees the stones burning in the statue that makes his, and then he makes his way down. And remember when I said that there was one piece of music in this Williams score that manages to always give me chills? It's when Indy has this one stone in his hand and holds it up to the others, making them all glow. It's a great moment with a beautiful score accompaniment. It's one of the only times I see Indy smile this entire film, too, by the way. <laughs> it's also the only time in the movie where he actually is living up to his reputation. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think it's a good moment, great score, and you believe it at this point. He's really in it just for the fortune and glory, which is something that they say as much as they say, Indy, in this movie, is they're really trying to point out that fortune and glory, fortune and glory, fortune and glory. You know, that he's he's in it not for altruistic means at this point. So they're trying to show that this movie and these elements changed him. But here it works because he sees them and he's fascinated and what's inside and the diamonds. Shut up, Willie. (laughs) Um, But it it is a great moment. And this is one of the few really nicely shot moments of those stones coming to light Mm. and reflecting off his face. Yeah. It works great. Yeah, and you know, and no pun intended, but I do feel that the fortune and glory thing is part of his arc in this movie, where he was out for that, but the more he got into it, I think he was more into the idea of rescuing these kids and rescuing this village. 
You know, that's why he ends up giving oh, the, the rock to the village. He flat out tells Willie, he's like, look, it would have just collected dust. What would I have done with it? It's, it's his arc. I mean, that's, that's the point. It's just got all the subtlety of a heart being ripped out of your chest. <laughs> For example. <laughs> Where did you pull that idea from? I do, I do love this moment when Indy tips his hat to the snake statue. That was a nice moment. The snake moves. Does it? I never noticed that. I never noticed. My wife. Give her all the credit in the world. Love you, honey. She's like, did you see the snake move? I'm like, no, it doesn't. I've seen this movie a dozen times. I rewound it, and as he walks away, the snake moves to the left towards the sound of the screaming going on. I never on. noticed that. It's funny. I, never, I didn't catch that. I never did. Love my wife for pointing that out. Well, Matt, you've only seen this like twice. Me and Adam have seen this dozens of times. I would have thought I would have caught that, but I didn't. Yeah, spoiler alert. I don't think there's going to be a third <laughs> So now that Indy has the three stones, he can get away scot-free, but he hears a child hollering in pain in the background. And I do think, again, this is part of his arc. Like, in the beginning, he was after the fortune and glory, and he can get it here if he just continued. I do believe that he would leave Willie in short round to get his fortune and glory. But he stops. He goes to help, throwing a rock at a guy who looks suspicious, suspiciously like the guy he fought at the plane last week, by the way. <laughs> and uh, this is when he's caught as our Willie in short round. Uh, to answer your previous point, uh, I think he would have no hesitation leaving Willie behind. I can't say the same for Short Round. You don't think so? No. I think his relationship with Short, How- Short Round is why he goes to these kids. Mm, okay. And again, going back to Spielberg not liking the darkness of this movie late in later years, it was Spielberg's idea to show these kids being whipped. This was his idea. He can only look at himself in the mirror sometimes. Indy is taken to a cage with Short Round, who tells him that if he listened to him, he'd live longer. But here's when we get the idea that if you drink the blood of Kali, you go into a nightmarish place where you become like them. And this is when the black magic details of the story are getting into what we're seeing here. How do we feel about this edition of black magic? This feels weird and a little much. I... I mean, it's amazing that we can see everything we saw in Raiders of the Lost Ark, and it feels kind of natural. But everything here with the black magic, it just feels off. It doesn't feel, I don't know. I get less and less. I can go with it less and less as I get older. It just it doesn't feel, it doesn't feel natural to the story that's going on. It just it feels like we had this idea, and then we had to pair it with the idea to be beginning and find a way to make it mesh i don't think it's seamless i don't hate it by any means it definitely takes a dark dark turn i think this is both of them you know as we talked about their marriages failing and everything else i think this is part of where this is coming from is the black ooze of that mm-hmm. divorce proceedings going on but i eh, i don't know it's i don't love it because it feels it takes away the the reality nature that came with you know, the Ark of the Covenant and historical stuff. And it turns this into, I don't know, being afraid of India around that time of the world and making it the reality for India's world. And it just, I don't know, it doesn't sit well with me. I don't like it. Yeah, I don't like that this leans into the fear-mongering aspect of visiting foreign countries, especially ones that, you know, as Americans, we ostensibly did not have a lot of involvement in. Mm. And this is basically the sequence from Empire Strikes Back where Han Solo is being tortured on Cloud City. Thing screams. Now, flip side, make this Scientologist, and I will completely go with you here. 
Oh, wait, that's Crystal School. We're getting that in a couple weeks. Come at me. <laughs> we <laughs> cut to Molaram as he interrogates Indy about the stones, as Jones eggs him on by saying he's still missing two. And then Indy verbally pushes verbally pushes them and spits out the blood brought to him by the kid from the scene before, by the way, causing the Maharaja to pull a remarkably resembling Indy voodoo doll out and hold it to the fire as Pat Roach... Out for sale at Disneyland everywhere. Right? <laughs> As Pat Roach whips Indy and as the Maharaja whips short round. And I love Indy here as he's just like, leave him alone, you bastards. But Indy is eventually too weak and succumbs to the blood. And we get a scene that horrified me as a kid. What, oh, what is he dreaming about? God, this fucking freaked me out. It's what you don't show is what horrifies the most, you know, and this that's what got me. Yeah, although if you were going to do this, I kind of wish this took up a bigger chunk of the movie if you were going to take Indiana Jones off the table and maybe have, I don't know, short round, have to save the day in a way. Because this, this, this comes and goes in 10 minutes. Yep. Yeah, it is kind of amazing how short this is. Um, I do like that Indy's getting whipped with his own. Yeah. Uh, it was a little thing that they take it away from him and he gets whipped with his own. There, there's just something to that. Mm-hmm. That's a nice point. Short round is amongst all the other kids and chained up. But we see him start to bring his axe to the chains. Meanwhile, Indy has turned to the dark side in, in the thuggy ceremony as Chatter Lal eggs the ceremony on and Indy is brought before Willie, who does the smartest thing she will do this, this entire movie, which is cover her heart. Molaram <laughs> isn't interested in pulling out her heart just yet, though. He brings Indy over and Willie tries her best Jedi mind trick, trying to convince him to help her. It's not working, though, as Indy swears to Molaram and change her up, just as Short Round shows up and wakes him up. Truly, I don't care if she survives. Her being lowered into that pit, though, would give her a lifetime of nightmares. <laughs> Which is good, because she's given me a lifetime of nightmares on my end. So that's okay. it, one thing I remember about this is being a child and looking at my dad and going, why didn't they rip out her heart and me getting an explanation about boobs at like seven years old? <laughs> That's your dad. You didn't get that explanation 20 minutes ago when he was touching that statue? <laughs> you know what? As a kid, this really freaked me out. And you know, Lucas and Spielberg have both played with this imagery before when your father figure turns on you. I love my dad so much as, as a child. I looked up to him as a child. He was my hero. And if he were to turn on me like this, it would just, it would devastate me. That's the part of this that really horrified I me. Love that, I love that Short Round never, his faith in Indy doesn't waver. Like, he mm -hmm. knows he's taken over, and it's it's Shorty that keeps trying to bring him back. And there's something nice about that. Oh, wow. My next note, <laughs> I guess I can nixnay this. Matt then cheers as Indy punches out Short Round. I guess that's not true. <laughs> uh, still makes me okay. laugh. <laughs> still a great moment. <laughs> I'm not cheering as Matt's cheering there. I'm I'm cheering more with Willie's getting lowered down. Like, go, 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 go. Yeah, I'm like, this thing doesn't have an express line. <laughs> Indy punches out short round, but he grabs the fire and wakes Indy up. Now, in the comic book I had, there was a scene where short round is cornered by one of the guards when he's trying to escape. And as a last resort, he hits him with the torch, which wakes him up, and he tells short round where to go. Without that scene, we have zero context as to why Short Round grabs this fire, like he knows what it's going to do, looks at Indy, tells him he loves him, and burns him. This movie isn't even two hours, but I think we needed that scene. 
unless they thought it would just slow the picture down. I think we needed to see that moment where Short Round realized what this flyer does. Well, it's funny you mentioned the issue, you know, slowing the movie down. That's one of my critiques. This movie's pacing is nowhere near as good as Raiders. Mm-hmm. Once you get to the palace, it kind of crawls for a considerable portion of time, and it really doesn't pick up until they leave this this state and go on the minecarts. Like, stuff is happening, it's propulsive, not in a pulpy sense. It's just moving in the way that we need to find a way to keep this story going because it's so straightforward. Like, there's really no no big obstacles in the hunt. They're not being chased by another party who's after these stones because they already have them. It's just awkwardly put together. Pacing's been part of my problem with it, and they just, like in the out-of-control minecart, I don't think it's nearly as, as well done as they think it is. Great job by Ford here, as after he's burned, he shakes his head, and even though he tells the guard to leave the kit for him, we know right away, just from the look in his eyes, that he's back. Right, Adam? He does, and then he gives it a little wink to to short round. And and I like that. I like it a bit. You know, quite a bit. That Shorty saves him, that when he's about to be back. I I like this moment. I think it's done well. I agree with you. And that that moment was really captured in that book I had, and it would always make me smile every time I saw him winking at short round. Yeah. I mean, it's a nice father figure moment that we never see again. Mm-hmm. Well, we're gonna get a we're ever. gonna get a big no ever. <laughs> <laughs> we're gonna get a big one here in a bit. But Indy tells Short Round he's back, and they go to town on the guards, knocking them into the pit. But Molaram, he has a secret escape compartment, I guess, as he just hits a lever, falls into the floor, and laughs. I'd love to see Short Round fight these guys. I as did well. too as a kid. He's, ju- he's jumping and kicking, just doing the little things you would see a kid do on the. You know why? Because it's, in the movies, all Asians know karate. That's why. <laughs> yeah, we're not yet at the point in the '90s where the Matrix made it so that all white people knew kung fu. <laughs> <laughs> or Fast and Furious. Yeah, Fast and Furious. There you go. Indy kills Chatter Lao by suffocation as they finally pull Willie up. And she hits Indy as she's released, but they kiss when she, when he says that he's fine. And then we get a sweet scene between Short Round and Indy as they exchange each other's hats, and Indy says that he's sorry. This was a great scene. Yeah, it, it creates a problem with me with the rest of the timeline of the franchise, but I like Indy and Shorty so much in this. Yeah, when I did this series before, that was brought up. Whereas, you know, we see Short Round and Indy grow into this great relationship here, but, you know, he's not seen in Raiders, and we never really get an explanation. Again, I think we will get that story. Just not... I think we're going to mm-hmm. as well. Especially considering who Piha Kwan is now, you know. Yep. Willie then tells Indy that it's time to leave, but he says, he says, that's right, but it'll be all of us. We cut to Indy fighting a few more guards, freeing the kids. As we get to the major scene, Spielberg had to shoot around Ford's injury, and it's a true testament to his talent that it comes off as well as it does. And that's his fight with this guard here, played by Pat Roach, who, as, as I mentioned earlier, he played the guard at the airplane last week. I've always liked this shot of the hammer hitting this guy on the head, Three Stooges style, <laughs> a scene added by Spielberg himself, <laughs> by the way. Yeah, the things they do to lighten mm-hmm. up, knowing that they had to, I think they were. I do too. And this whole fight on the rock-crushing belt is exciting. Willie gets in on the act by throwing oh, rocks yeah. at the guy as Short Round fights the Maharaja and his voodoo doll. This knife in the back must have been how Ford was feeling this entire shoot <laughs> while eventually waking him up with waking the Maharaja up with fire too. So no more power for him. Now the Maharaja is back to being a normal boy. Now the shot of this guy going through the belt, is that really any worse than a Nazi getting shredded by a propeller like we saw last week? 
Oh, that's no different than the end of Who Framed Roger Rabbit. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> Four years later. That's yeah. that's Judge Doom. Mm-hmm. But but it's it's done slapstick. Yeah, it is. It is. It's still pretty gross though when you see that blood just go right through that belt. Oh, yeah, well, it's the same thing as Raiders when they cut when you get hit by the. Yeah, that's exactly what I said. Yeah, I, I was wondering if yeah, that was a, yeah, if yeah. it was any worse though. You know what I'm saying, or is it the exact same thing? I don't know. I think this is worse. Yeah, going down and hearing the dude just completely get grounded. <laughs> Yeah, I think that's a little worse. <laughs> yeah, I mean, this is what they did to Benicio Del Toro in License to Kill. Oh, yeah, that's right. Wow, mm-hmm. nice memory. Mm-hmm. I only saw that movie that one time. So the Maharaja tells Shorty that they need to take the left tunnel to get out. They fight off a few more guards as Willie gets the minecart moving. Indy swings into it, and wouldn't you know it, they take the right tunnel, which is red. While this is going on, and I've never ever thought of this correlation until this time watching the kids fight back while this is going on is an absolute ewoks versus stormtroopers return Mm -hmm. the jedi moment Mm. literally down to rocks and sticks being thrown down from above yep interesting bit of trivia this uh these tunnels it's a slide nod to star wars the left tunnel is blue that's the good tunnel the bad tunnel is red and they went into the bad (laughs) one that's very true that's exactly intended yeah, and much like Return of the Jedi, you have a culturally insensitive group uh, that, that is fighting that is fighting a equally an equally reprehensible uh, group of evil. Now, this minecart chase always fun. The sound design in it, the bits of it almost falling off the track. There are a couple instances, Adam, you kind of hinted at this earlier, where I'm like, okay, this was 1984. You couldn't really do what you thought you could. But all in all, I really do like this minecart chase. It's fun stuff. Oh, it's so fun that they turned it into the the ride at Yes, they sure did. You know, I think this is, this is cool. This is a fun way to, to climax the movie. Well, first climax, there's really two. Yeah, I dig this a lot. It's fun and goes on twice as long as it should go really? on. Really? <laughs> oh, I thought it went on just as just yeah. right amount, I thought. This, I, I just felt the length to it this time that I was just like, okay, this thing just, like, does it end? And I never felt that before growing up. And maybe I was just exhausted, but I was just, I, 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 how big are these, t- I mean, they're in a different, they're out of India. Yeah. By the time <laughs> they're in a different country when they're done. <laughs> but it's it's a good scene. It's funny, the Disneyland connection. As they actually used some audio from the Matterhorn, the Matterhorn bobsleds to get some of these sounds going through. And yeah, I I like the minecart. I love how it ends. You know, they knew they needed to add some comedy aspects to it. So, you know, the slapsticky parts I think are welcome because it breaks up some of the darkness we've had to go through. So I like it. It's just to me, it's a little long, or it's a lot long, and I have a hard time trying to figure out just the topography of where everything hmm. is. Bit of trivia, this was another scene left over from Raiders. Initially, Indy and Marion, they were going to get away from where the Ark was opened with the Ark in this mine chase. But they wisely left it at the Nazis being melted at the end. Here, this stuff just, I, I think this stuff just works. With Short Round almost being pulled apart to the shovel knocking the dirt into another cart. To even Willie punching out another guard. See, she's a little useful. Mm-hmm. Yeah, she's silent at that moment. <laughs> So they're going nonstop, but they need to stop. Otherwise, they're going to crash. So Indy gets out and puts his feet down, acting like a set of brake pads. And that grinding into the rails causes his feet to almost get caught on fire. He begs for water. And wouldn't you know it, he has all the water he wants as Mullah Ram has used all the thuggy water supply to try and take out this one archaeologist. I do love Ford here as he's just begging for water. And when he sees this wave coming, he's like, oh, shit, water, water. 
They go to the cliff and water is spurting from all angles here. This action is almost nonstop. Are you guys with it at this point? Oh yeah, I am. Like I think like the action is is going. I got the nice little break of comedy and then it's going again with the water tower, you know, escaping. Yeah, I think this is a good way to go. You know, I think we're nearing an end and we're obviously setting up for a final, you know, action piece showdown and yeah, I think this part's well done. Agreed. So the pacing issues are still afoot, but you're still you you're with it with the scene. Well, I think the pacing gets better once they get in the mind okay. parts because it turns into action worthy of the first movie. It's it's a car ch- it's a bond car chase. Mm-hmm. They get past the flowing water and they find a drawbridge. Short round tests the wood, only to have it give out on him, and he almost falls. Meanwhile, Indy is running toward the bridge when he runs into two sword carrying thugs. And in a brilliant nod to arguably the most famous scene, famous scene from last week, Indy reaches for his gun, and Williams plays the exact theme that was playing when Indy shot the sword-carrying baddie last time. Here, he has no gun, and the look on Ford's face is fucking priceless. He then finds himself in a real Han Solo-type situation when he runs those guards off and finds literally hundreds more waiting for him. Funniest part of the movie, I right I love here. that, because th- that's great, because it's taken right from Star Wars. Like, it's the exact same type of moment from Star Wars. It's a nice nod. There's people that have that have been upset because this being a prequel, so by having a nod to that swordsman gun scene from Raiders of the Lost Ark, that it doesn't make sense in this one that the gun's not there. But I think it's just a fun little nod that I go with. And Ford selling it, as well as the score just makes me laugh every time. Yeah, I definitely think it's. I'm more on that front because I don't have that critique of, oh, this is prequelitis. No. It, it doesn't bother me in the same way that I mentioned earlier about his like motivations. So Indy gets on the bridge and then finds himself, as my brother would say as a toddler, guck. We then see another situation not dissimilar to Raiders. Indy holds the stones over the edge, thinking this will cause Molaram to withdraw his troops. But Molaram tells Indy to drop them. After all, they will be found while he won't. I like that. Like, that is the moment that I get from Molaram. Mm-hmm. Is that one right there. They'll be found. You, you won't. won't. Like, it's while they're sitting here, literally the bridge over the River mm-hmm. Kwai. Sorry, but I know it's a second joke. They filmed it the same spot where they filmed Bridge yep. over the River Kwai. <laughs> I couldn't help it. But that's the Malaram moment for me that just sticks with same. me. He looks one way, and he has a set of guards with their swords drawn. He looks another way. We see more guards. He finally realizes he's in a no-win situation. He's just like, oh, shit. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Fantastic. He didn't give Short Round a signal, and Willie asks if he's nuts, to which Short Round exclaims, he no nuts, he crazy. Now, I will say, this is the best reaction that Kate Capshaw has in the I agree. Movie, when she realizes what's about to happen. <laughs> yes. Indy cuts the bridge in another effect that, while it looks spectacular from afar, I'm not sure how it holds up now. It's a little off, I think. Poorly. What? Poorly. That's how, that's how yeah, it Yeah, that's what I thought. This... Yeah, this aged poorly. <laughs> <laughs> People fall to the crocodiles below as fighting ensues on the bridge with Molaram being a real dick and just pulling his soldiers to the depths so he can proceed. I like him throwing, I do them, too. throwing them down to Indy, who's below him. <laughs> yeah. like it's a great little thing, mm-hmm. you know. It were, it's, it's fitting for what he would be and who they would yep. be. Molaram and Indy, they fight on the bridge, and this is different. Our main protagonist and main antagonist hanging thousands of feet above off a vertical angle, fighting. 
I got to say, every time they cut to the crocodiles, it's apparent that there's just some random stock footage they threw in. It doesn't look the same. It doesn't look like it's color corrected the same. Mm -hmm. And by flashing back and forth, it just lessens the scene for me here. Mm -hmm. You know what's going to happen, but I'm just like, ooh, the insert shots are done subpar, especially for Spielberg. Really nature footage. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Richard Attenborough to start an air There we go. Well, you got the... You got, the, you got the British in this movie. Why yeah. not? We then get Muller Ram going after his heart. And Williams even plays the same theme we heard when that poor guy had his heart ripped out earlier in the film. This is well done. Indy's in pain, but he's able to fight Muller Ram off enough to stop the ritual. Though after he hits him, he grabs his chest like, damn, that hurt. This, I feel I feel like Indy's in peril. This is suspenseful. I think he's going to do it. Yeah, this this part with them, both of them hanging on right here is, is quite well done. But then Indy switching it up and showing his knowledge and mm. what he's able to pull out by reciting here, I think it's overlooked because it just shows he's more than the grave robber, that his knowledge of what they're going through, how the stones are going to react to it, I think is is really good stuff. Yeah, let me get to that. So he moves up some more and is again confronted by Mullah Ram. This time he goes after the stones, proclaiming them to be his. But Indy evokes some Hindu mind tricks of his own, telling Mullah Ram that he betrayed Shiva. Meanwhile, by taking the stones and using them for evil, he is a destroyer of life, not a bringer of life, like the Shiva legend says. This causes the stones to glow, and as Mullah Ram grabs the last one, he has a look on his face like, uh-oh, what have I done? Is he awakened from the black sleep before falling to his death? For the first time, in all the times I've watched this movie, I looked at his face like, I think he's been awakened by the heat in this rock before he falls. I never got the sense he was possessed. I thought he was the one doing it. Mm, okay. Maybe it was just me kind of reading into it. I thought it's just he felt like maybe it makes him immune to pain. Okay. Yeah, I never caught that, but it'd be interesting to, you know, to rewatch just that scene with that kind of thought process. I think by him being burned, it's, I think he, I think he's realizing that Shiva just acknowledged that he betrayed Shiva mm. and that he's about to suffer for it. Not that it matters, though, as Molaram falls in a fall that. What is it about 80s action where they decided to have their villains fall from miles on up, yet it never looked good? <laughs> I I love the behind the scenes that the dummy that they had to do, they didn't like the dummy, so they made one with like mechanical rotating arms yeah. <laughs> to show it flailing yes. as it fell. Molaram hits his head on the mountain on the way down and lands in the water, only to be ripped to shreds by the crocodiles below. God, Lucas and Spielberg were angry, weren't they? <laughs> Jesus Christ. <laughs> Last week you had your you main... You those crocodiles after their ex-wives. Yeah. <laughs> Last week you had your main antagonist blow up by the ark because it was opened and God was angry. I get that. Here, your antagonist has fallen off a cliff, hits his head on a mountain, and is ripped to shreds by fucking crocodiles. This is when the Maharaja shows up with Bloomberg just in time for those heroic white people to take out those evil Indians. Right, guys? <laughs> Yep, fire up. We're going to use our, our technology to take down these savages who are still using bow and arrows. <laughs> God, th- th- this is like so. I think this movie dates as badly as like Tim Burton's Batman. That's right. It does age pretty badly. As Hindi makes his way up the bridge with the soul stone meant for the village. They show up to the village the same time as the kids, and everything's nice and green before the stone is even placed back in its place. Indy tells the man who sent them on their mission that he understands the stone's powers now. And Willie tells Indy that he could have kept it, 
But Indy says, why? It would have just been another rock collecting dust. Plus, uh, this village needs its magic rock. She swears there will be no more adventures with Dr. Jones. And she's right, by the way. (laughs) (laughs) She's moving on to the director. (laughs) Yeah. Short Round has somehow found his elephant as it sprays water on them. Indy and Willie kiss, and Short Round covers his eyes, and the kids cheer as credits roll on Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom. Boys, what do you feel about the wrap-up on this film? Oh, God, this is such a 180. (laughs) This is so small. It is. In this movie, it makes me want to vomit. (laughs) I don't don't mind. I think it's amazing after how dark this thing got that it, you know, burned some lightness here at the end. I don't mind. I'd like to whip, keep you know, Capshaw a few times for this movie too, but not to bring her close to me. But it's, I'm glad it ends on a more positive note than we got for the last, you know, hour uh, throughout the middle of this. But it's, it's, it's fun. It's light. Is it schmaltzy? Oh, hugely, but I don't mind it. You want to see her suffer? Watch Dreamscape. All right. <laughs> Scale of one to 10. What do we give Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom? Adam, you go ahead and go, sir. There's a reason that this film is, probably as argued and divisive in the Indiana Jones franchise as Kingdom of the Crystal Skull or The Last Jedi to take it to Star Wars. I mean, there's people who fervently you know, defend this, and there's people who ardently hate it. And I'm not on either side. I do think this is a problematic film, both in writing, but also in directing and cinematography and pacing and score. I don't think anything lives up to the first one, and that's a shame. I think the adventure is a good idea, but but I think somebody needed to come through, do some more passes, tighten it up, take away some of the seams that we get throughout the story that are as apparent on, you know, some of the effects work. Harrison Ford is, is, you know, damn good in this film, and so is Keiko Kwan, but I'll, I'm, (sighs) Kate Capshaw is ruinous. There is nothing that she does to this movie that is not harmful in this movie. And that's a shame because she's in it throughout the entire damn movie. It opens and closes with her. And that's a problem. The villains, they are the the stereotypical Bond movies from the middle Bond-type franchise. And that's just not good because they could be so much better. Um, it's not fully fleshed out, and that's a shame. It's not a bad movie. I actually had a better time watching it than I thought I was going to have. I got caught up in the adventure, uh, but it's there's a beginning that does not feel like it fits with the middle, which surely does not feel like it fits with the very end. And I think that's where a lot of the problems with this movie goes. It's part of the franchise. It's enjoyable. I like the prequel idea because we see some of indie softening. I think you can read a lot into the character he becomes by some of the choices in this movie. But I think it suffers a lot because of Spielberg and his life at that time. It's good. It's not great. It's not one I put on regularly, but if it's on, I also don't rush to shut it off. So I'm going to give it a seven. I enjoy it. It's it's a fine movie, but it is a pretty big fall off a cliff from the perfect film we got last week. All right, seven out of ten from Mr. Bunch. Goudreau. My good friend for 10 years. I kind of feel like I know where you're going with this, but I had no idea where you're going last week. Where are you going with the darkness of Temple of Doom? I think one of the things that has hurt this movie 
as the years have gone by is the reputation of its predecessor and its successor. Both those movies are substantially more lauded than Temple of Doom. Do I believe in the latter? Tune in next week. But expectations and context, I think, are always key when you're assessing movies. And in this instance, I think the real-life circumstances of which the filmmakers put this together show visibly in good ways, but the majority are negatives. Unlike the first one, the globe-trotting sense of adventure is largely absent. And the elements, while good in their own right, like the opening or the closing, feel like separate serials that were meshed together to make a movie. Unlike the first one, where I feel like everything feels of one piece. Here, I don't have that sentiment. And I'm starting to see the side of Spielberg I really don't like with the the schmaltz at the end. I have said my piece on Kate Capshaw, and I think she alone dampens my score significantly. But Short Round was something I kind of came around on compared to how I used to feel. Ford is as good as he's ever been, but I think this is a movie undone by its age. I think the portrayal of Indian culture is offensive and shocking, considering that I think Spielberg largely has steered clear from a lot of negative stereotypes. You know, look at something like Empire of the Sun, where he's dealing with, you know, difficult subject matter. Obviously, there's Schindler's List, among other things. So it's it's kind of an outlier in that way. And I think it's an outlier in the Indiana Jones franchise for reasons I've talked about. I can't go remarkably low, but at the same time, this is a huge step down from Raiders. So I, I'm at a 5 on 10. I think it's okay because there there's some elements that I do like, but as a singular piece, I don't think this movie measures up to Raiders in any conceivable way. Wow. 5. I was not expecting you to go that low. Adam, I was not expecting you to go that high. I am going to go <laughs> higher than both of you guys. And it's for one reason, one reason only. Matt, I cannot disagree with any point that you just said, especially given the insensitivity that went on when coming up with these racial stereotypes. I completely agree with you there. I'm not going to discount it. What I will say is this was a different time in both Steven Spielberg and George Lucas's lives. And Spielberg spent the rest of the 80s, and hell, he's probably still apologizing for this movie to this day. I see him in press releases in the lead up to this new one. I've seen him apologize for this movie. And I think I'm going to give this a higher rating because I think this is when both Lucas and Spielberg were uninhibited. They didn't have kids at this time. They didn't have wives to cater to at this time. They didn't have anything. Well, Spielberg had a future wife here, but they didn't have anything that they felt that they needed to live up to here. They are still kids in a candy store playing with toys and coming up with scenes on the fly and doing things, not even worrying about how dark it is. Doing things, not even worrying about, is it okay if these guys have guns? Yes, I want to keep bringing that scene up because it's one of my favorite movies of all time and that digital reinvention of it just ruined it when he put walkie-talkies in those policemen's hands at the end of E.T. as opposed to guns. 
He was not that filmmaker at this time. He was a guy making films for his own liking, and I enjoyed that. I think Harrison Ford is very good here. Last week he was perfect. Here, I would say he's about 90 to 95% as good as last week. I think he's in better shape than last week. I think he was really prepared for this. I think he's having, despite his pain, I think he's having a lot of fun with this character. Yes, Willie is detrimental to this movie. Willie is a huge step down from last week, and I think Spielberg and Lucas knew that. They wanted to go different. They made her blonde as opposed to a brunette like last week. They made her weak as opposed to strong like last week. They made her the the definition of a damsel in distress, the kind of character that nobody likes. And for Indy to fall in love with her just because he's the hero, I guess that's Spielberg, like Adam said earlier, directing with something other than his head. But at the same time i think there's a lot of good stuff here there's a lot of good filmmaking going on there's some great music being played the score is really good i still hold i hold this score in in williams top five scores of his career i just i just love this score to pieces so i want to go eight and a half eight and a half out of ten i had a lot of fun revisiting this i enjoyed seeing how dark these guys got and the result of this film is the start of the downward turn of both their careers. Spielberg picked it up, obviously. He, he did Jurassic Park. He did Schindler's List, which got him the Oscar. He did Saving Private Ryan. He, did, he had a lot, of more, a lot more ups after this, but Lucas kind of took a downfall after this. And we'll talk about that when we get to the prequels in a month or so. But eight and a half for me, I still think this is a fun watch. It does kind of have couple pacing issues, but I still had a lot of fun with this. And uh, we're seeing Indy be Indy, and he can't go wrong with that all right indiana jones and the temple of doom is behind us spielberg was very quick to put it behind him by the time he got to indiana jones and the last crusade he wanted to make something much different i think he succeeded with that next week's film is a far different movie goudreau have you seen next week's movie more than you've seen this one yes i have but i think it's been an equal amount of time since I last watched it. Okay, what do you remember about it? I remember that he chose poorly scene. I remember the sequence where Sean Connery's in the side cart. But that's basically it. Interesting. So that would be pretty much another almost new watch for you. Adam, you and I used to reenact that goddamn you chose poorly scene, I think every single time we were <laughs> in school and we had a, <laughs> a multiple choice test. Uh, so you and I have discussed this movie a lot, but I haven't discussed it with you in a long time. How do you feel? Uh, how do you think you're going to feel next week when we get to Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade? It's going to be interesting because I I might have seen this more than any other indie film, and that's not to preview a score. I'm just I'm I think it might be, and it could be because of the time that it came out. This thing was promoted like heck. I remember not realizing that Sean Connery was just talking Scottish being Indiana Jones's father back in the day. You know, we got the James Bond connection. I'm excited to catch some new things. It's been a couple of years since I've watched it. I'm looking forward to uh, watching it again. But this is the movie that, yeah, I, I mean, I grew up with this thing, and it was massive and literally the right off into the sunset. Like, you did not think you were going to get another movie after this. It was the movie to watch that year and it's going to be interesting to to look at it with a critical eye and i wonder if i'm going to love it just as more if i'm going to pick it apart bit by bit but yeah i can't wait to look at this 
for us, and, and in the especially in the context of looking at all these movies as one big story. All right, as for me, I definitely have memories of it. I saw this in theaters, and it was it was a different experience. Let me just put it that way. It was five years later, so I was older at that point. I was at twelve years old, so still excited. But we'll get into my exact feelings about it next week. And let's not forget. This series is leading up to a review, maybe not week of release, but pretty close review of the new one that none of us have seen, Indiana Jones and the Dial of Destiny. I cannot wait for us to judge that one. To do a new Indiana Jones movie and to review it with you guys on our own platform, I am just, it's the cultivation of why I started podcasting is for feelings like this. Honestly, I I just cannot wait for that and stay tuned. Uh, By the time this is aired, we've probably, we've probably released a transformers show. We have a whole bunch more stuff coming up. We could release reviews. We're going to have mission impossible coming up. We're going to have the flash is probably going to be done by the time this is out. What else we could release? What else we have Matt coming up? Uh, We got Oppenheimer. We got Mission impossible. I really have to think, but those are the big mm-hmm. ones. I don't think I'm missing any heavy, any heavy hitters. So much coming up on the site. It's summertime. All the movies are coming out, and Matt and I have done a ton of these series already, so we're playing catch-up with these movies that are coming out. And poor Adam has had to watch some things he probably wasn't expecting to. <laughs> um, <laughs> but it's just a joy to do these with you guys. Thank you so much for going on this dark journey of Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom with me. Until next week when we do Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade, okie dokie, Dr. Jones, you better hold on to your podcast. Thank you, gentlemen. So once again, Jones, what was briefly yours is now mine. What a fitting end to your life's pursuits. You're about to become a permanent addition to this archaeological find. Who knows? In a thousand years, even you may be worth something. <laughs> Son of a bitch. Thank you for listening to this episode of The Three Men in a Retrospective Podcast. Well, made it. Join us next week for an entirely new review. Careful. You might get exactly what you wish for. I wonder sometimes, monsieur, if you have that clearly in mind. And if you like this podcast, please head over to percolatedmedia.net or search your podcast stream of choice for some of our blockbuster retrospectives such as Avatar, Top Gun, the films of Martin Scorsese and Leonardo DiCaprio, Pirates of the Caribbean, and many more. I should say you look rather lost. But then I cannot imagine where in the world the three of you would look at home. There's nothing you have that I could possibly want. And if you would be so kind... Please take a moment and give us a positive review and rating on your podcast platform of choice. It truly helps others find and discover our podcasts. Well, I thought archaeologists were always funny little men searching for their mommies. Mommies.
mean Kali in hell. The Three Men and a Retrospective Podcast is produced by Garrett, Matt, Adam, and Nathan. There may be hundreds of skulls at Agator. Whoever finds them will control the greatest natural force the world has ever known. Edited by Garrett. Voiceovers by Adam. You're my best friend. Give me your hat. Why? Because I'm going to puke in it. Three Men and a Retrospective Podcast is for review and discussion, and all clips, music, and audio cues are used as such. Indy! Henry! Follow me! I know the way! Ha! Got lost in his own museum, huh? Uh-huh. So, Lucas went to a couple who he went to college with and helped him on American Graffiti, a couple by the name of Gloria Katz and William Huck. We kind of hinted at this last week, and we'll get into it once we dig into the film. Oh, we already talked about the fact that Katz's uh, absence is felt. Now, I also know this guy from Bloodsport. <laughs> and he just has the... Oh, go ahead. Nope, I was, I was just not along with it, yep. <laughs> And this is when we see the one thing that gets Willie on this adventure. The only reason Indy takes her is because she gets her hands on the anecdote and he needs to live. The antidote, you That's... mean. And, 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 and anecdote would be she picked up a magazine. <laughs> I said antidote. <laughs> no, you said anecdote. When you go back and listen to this, it's going to be anecdote. Delicacies in other parts of the world are, I mean, I don't know, Anthony Bourdain would fill himself at home inside this palace with what he was eating. But I could definitely see where it goes too far. All right, that's it. For my wedding, we're going to have raw snakes. Um. <laughs> and if it, to this day... We enjoyed it, at least. As a kid, I, I dug this, man. I thought this was awesome. I was so upset I think that's because the... I... I'm sorry, Adam. I was so upset. How do we feel about this edition of Black Magic? Matt? Is Matt on mute? Matt's on mute. Adam, what about you, sir? The globetrotting sense of adventure is largely absent. And, <clears throat> excuse me, the, the elements. Until next week when we do Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade. Okie dokie, Dr. Jones, you better hold on to your podcast. Thank you, gentlemen. All right. What, no slight remark this time, Adam? I've been loving amplifying those little slight remarks you make when I, when I do the credits. <laughs> <laughs> the 
Indiana Jones, adieu.